0: Get ready Ayush, three, two, one, action! Hello and welcome back to season two of Could We Do That? I'm glad you stuck around this long to hear my friend, TJ. That's me. And Jake.
1: Hey, that's me.
0: And myself. Just sit around and talk to some really cool people about their jobs and how they got to where they are. Uh, Stay tuned for more Could We Do That? Hello, we got our we got our man of the hour on.
2: Welcome, guys. Hey guys, can you hear us?
1: Can you You hear hear me? Okay. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Coming in loud and clear. Much better than Ayush.
1: Yeah, much better.
3: (laughs)
2: Perfect.
0: Classic. Classic one-up in me. Already. (laughs) Good old older brother.
1: I mean, if Arjun's doing it first, aren't you one-undering him?
0: Oh, snap. Whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) See, Jake, this is why I don't like you.
1: (laughs) False, you love me. (laughs) Oh, my
3: God. All righty. We ready to go? Should we start it off? Yeah, yeah. Welcome to the podcast, buddy. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah,
0: nervous. (laughs) Trust me, there's nothing to be nervous about. If I do this, you can do it. Exactly. (laughs) So today we have Arjun. He is a systems engineer in the nuclear department. Um, But uh, I'm not going to spoil it too much. I'd rather him tell the story. So, hey, welcome. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about what you do, um, kind of what you're doing now and what your title really means and uh, kind of how you got to where, where you are.
2: Yeah, sure. So right now I work as a systems engineer for a company that makes um, large, one of a kind custom equipment um, for many industries. Uh, by training, I'm a mechatronics engineer. So this means I work with the mechanical and electronics aspects of systems and equipment. Um, Again, mostly industrial, large industrial equipment. So my responsibility covers, you know, design, um, build, assembly, and testing of the equipment all the way from a concept to the customer buy-off. So at my company specifically, I'm part of the nuclear technology business. So, um, you know, my company does a lot of, their main business is building assembly lines Um, so if you think, you know, assembly lines for building cars, um, it's large lines, you know, the size of football fields, um, it's got a lot of stations. Some have, you know, manual operators standing there feeding parts. Some are completely automated. They take parts that come in and flip them and weld them and clean them and inspect them, all that kind of stuff. And out finally spits a part or a bunch of parts or an assembly. Um, in my side of the business, we build uh, tools for using in nuclear energy applications. So, you know, think power plants or um, processing
3: medical isotopes, that kind of stuff. Could be like a CNL reactor, for example. Exactly.
2: There you go. <laughs> That's a little close to home, right? Yeah.
3: <laughs> so, 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 Arjun, what made you choose something like this?
2: Yeah. Um, Something specifically, you know, nuclear or just engineering in general? Eng-
3: engineering in general.
2: Well, that's easy. All kids in India are supposed to grow up to be yeah. doctors or lawyers or engineers. <laughs> and my dad was an engineer. So that was an obvious choice. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's a little bit of, I mean, so honestly, uh, it was more that I couldn't really think of anything else that I wanted to do anyway. So, so like throughout just to school, give, yeah, go yeah ahead. just
0: to give a little little background like you did a lot of your schooling in India as well right so that probably had a big influence on sort of what you what your future would look like so we you came here when you were 14 so up until then I guess all 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 your influence was really in India right
2: for sure yeah and in India there's a huge focus on on academics so right from when you're kids you're doing a heck of a lot more homework than kids do here to start from. Um, But also because there's just so much competition uh, to get ahead in life, parents put their kids into like after-school programs for like maths and science and English and stuff like that. Um, I was fortunate enough that my parents weren't, um, didn't, didn't feel they needed to burden us so much. But still, just from the way academics focus um is in India, I did a lot of like my maths and science background um was pretty strong. So when I came to Canada in basically start of high school, uh, I found you know i just I just continued that. i throughout school, I felt you know I was good at maths and science, um except biology that you know that's just <laughs> that's different <killer>. but yeah. <laughs> But, um, the rest of it, it it just made sense to me, like, you know, physics and, and math, like it, I liked that it was just logical. And that's just how my brain works. Cause you know, like in, in math, there's always a correct answer and science, usually there's a good explanation for things that make sense. And if it didn't, then, you know, there was a well-defined framework or method for questioning it and digging into it. So that, you know, from a schooling perspective, it sort of made sense. To go in that direction. And also, I liked building things and figuring out how things worked. Um, and look, when I was a kid, I had a bunch of those G.I. Joe action figures, <laughs> and they were all basically the same parts, just painted differently. So when I had a G.I. Joe and it's like leg broke or it's, you know, arm broke, I would just take apart two or three of my G.I. Joes, take all the pieces that work and just assemble it into like a Frankenstein G.I. Joe. <laughs> I was, yeah, like I was doing this at like seven or eight years old. So I like that kind of mechanical hands-on stuff. So that, you know, that sort of led me in that direction. I It's not that I was sort of like right from high school, I was passionate. Like, yes, engineering, this is the calling of my life kind of thing. <laughs> it was a little bit more of, you know, I couldn't really think of anything else that I would want to spend my career doing.
3: Did you basically like from like start of like high school, have it in your mind that you're going to be going into it, doing engineering then?
2: Not as a conscious decision, not like, you know, yep. Come grade 12. I know like engineering is what I want. Then I'm going to look into the schools that are good at it. Like all that kind of stuff. But just, I guess, uh, subconsciously, I just always knew that's what I wanted to do.
3: Cool.
2: Interesting. So
0: yeah, it's it's pretty clear that you know growing up in India influenced that engineering aspect of it a lot. But um did you know, you know, what your what your day-to-day would look like or what kind of engineering you would want to do? Because it is still a pretty broad field, right? Like you can't just say engineering, like you're clearly a you define it at some point, right? So did you know that going into it or did you figure it out as you went along?
2: Um a little bit bit i had a direction right like i knew i enjoyed hands-on mechanical things but like at the same time not things like building bridges right so mm-hmm. um not civil kind of thing like things like civil specifically didn't interest me but on the other hand i also liked uh, programming and um like in physics i used to like the you know circuits and and that kind of courses so i knew i also like the um the electrical and the programming aspects of it so when i heard about a program called mechatronics that combined mechanical and electronics i was like well that's got to be it and (laughs) that that was just it right like yeah no
0: no that that makes sense (laughs) you you found the the career or the path that brought the two things that you liked about engineering together which is really cool
2: yeah and it was more like yeah if i go this route I have a good idea what i'll be learning in university but i wasn't looking further than that i wasn't thinking like i didn't have my eyes set on a type of job and knowing what people in that job would be doing mm-hmm. but it was more yeah. like like the next step of my life i think i'll enjoy doing this in university so i'm going to take that and then see where that goes
1: right right yeah now- Arjun was there ever a point where your your conviction to engineering like wavered at all? Like it sounds like you had a pretty solid path forward but was there any any moments where you're like, "Eh, I don't know."
2: Um if not not really, but you know, there were there were a couple of moments where I was just thinking, "Hey, you know, I'm investing all this time and money in this. Is this what I really want to do?" And the answer to that question always turned into, "Well, can I think of anything else that I would rather do? And if not, then, you know, why rock the boat? Just to see where this goes kind of thing.
3: Yeah, that's fair. You never have one of those moments. So yeah, maybe I should be a videographer or something. Like <laughs> nope, Shots that, fired. That, that, <laughs> it, it
2: didn't even really occur to me until um, Ayush did that. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. There's like so many other cool things out there. And I just never spent much time thinking about it. I just took sort of the the well-trodden path and didn't stop to, you know, think of the possibilities. So yeah. just looking back, I do sometimes wish I had spent more time um, developing some things, uh, some sort of passion kind of things rather than the, the straight path of life kind of things.
0: So actually, you know, that brings up a good point. I think, um, Especially you and I, we kind of take it for granted when when it comes to engineering that because you know all of our family is in it, we we know a lot about it. We kind of take for granted all of the little things. So could you tell us a little bit about the different paths of engineering that you could have taken, and um and like uh, why you ended up well, you kind of expanded on why you chose mechatronics, but there are so many other ones as well, right?
3: Yeah,
2: for sure. Um... So engineering has always had a few traditional major fields. So mechanical and electrical, um, those are always, you know, have always been solid options. Then there's civil and chemical engineering. And these were, um, you know, the, the main traditional, like if you go back 40, 50, even 100 years, these have always existed. And then uh, There've been more fields that came up, sort of as technology evolved and um, just the, the the new things in in the world evolved, right? So computer engineering became a thing maybe three or four decades ago, um, and then more recently, like say maybe twenty or twenty years ago, maybe um, mechatronics became a thing because you know robotics and automation was a huge deal, and then software engineering became a thing. So um, the latest, I think, uh, is nanotechnology. And even when I say latest, I'm still going back maybe fifteen years. Um, when I was still in school, the newest program that came out was nanotech, and you know it's it's hugely focused. Like by that point, you're getting very focused. But if you know if you want to stick to basics and you want to take an education that's very broad, then Mechanical, electrical, or chemical will set you up to do all sorts of diff- to to go in all sorts of different directions after you graduate.
1: Yeah, very cool. And um, you, you had mentioned you you didn't have much of an idea of what kind of job you would do um, after your education, right? So, w- what were some of the options that were available to you afterward? Did you did you have a few, or did you sort of find that? That niche spot and just push forward for one particular position.
3: Um,
2: no, usually for for a lot of people, unless you're super passionate about a very specific thing, mm-hmm. most people just throw themselves out there and you know try and get a decent job coming out of school, and then mm-hmm. that sort of becomes their strength, right? They just for sure. You 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 more you use more time you spend in that the more of a, more experience you build in it, the more um, focused you get, and then that's sort of your uh, strength. Mm-hmm. And it was sort of like that for me too. And actually like getting into nuclear was totally because my parents lived up in Chalk River and that's a huge sort of nuclear engineering, nuclear technology hub. Right. So if it wasn't for that, it's you know nowhere in university did I stop and think, hey, nuclear. That's (laughs) what I want (laughs) to (laughs) do.
1: For sure.
0: (laughs) So um, one thing, though, I think that was really cool about your program, and I think it's becoming more common now, is the co-op part of it. Um, Mm -hmm. So that, if anybody is familiar, um, can you expand on what that involves and how it worked for you?
2: Sure. Yeah. So it's, it's, you know, the concept isn't new. It's basically doing internships, right? So in engineering, like a lot of schools do offer, have offered internship before they were called co-ops. And you, you know, after you're well through the majority of your education, and it was most typically done after a third year out of a four-year program, you have the opportunity to go work for a company for, um, uh, you know, you you sort of take a year off of school to go work with a company, get some Real-world exposure to what an engineering job is like, and there's a couple. There's a few benefits of that. One, um, and hopefully this doesn't happen too often, is you just sort of figure, oh man, is this is what I'm spending four years to do. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I don't want to do this anymore. Even if you were good at it and you enjoyed it in in school, uh, in the books, maybe it teaches you that you know that doing that kind of a job as a career isn't for you. And then there's Mm -hmm. there's still options, right? Like if you liked taking all those courses in school, then you can go for higher education and become a professor or something, or a researcher or something like that. Um, But for most people, it gets their foot in the door at a company such that after graduation, you have a good idea of what at least one industry is like. You've made some contacts, um you've got something to put on your resume that's more than just a degree and you know it, it's sort of it starts the direction that your career goes in. and the the you know one sort of last but not the least benefit is these are usually paid. so it mm-hmm. reduces the debt that you've got coming out of college as well. Mm. But and you, my sorry, program yeah, yeah and may, maybe a bit more about the program at the school I went to was, instead of doing one long, you know, one year or 16 month internship at one company, they broke it down into four month internships, which, you know, uh, more commonly known as co-op. And we broke them apart such that we were in school one term, did a co-op next term, followed by school, then co-op and so on. We mm-hmm. never got summers off. It was just always rotating four months from when you started till when you were done. So. A four-year degree took us five years to finish, but we got you know, two years of experience, so to
3: speak, by you, the time we graduated. Would you have been doing these co-ops with the different places each time, or were you with the same company every time we were doing these co-op things?
2: It's up to you, but yeah, all, all six co-ops that we had could be at completely different companies. Um, I don't think most people spent all six of them at, at the same company. Um, People do spend, you know, more than one sometimes, uh, two or three, if they really like the place and they know that's where they want to go after they graduate. But for most people, it's an opportunity to try out different different fields and different companies. So even in my so my first co-op term was at a company just doing, you know, AutoCAD that kind of stuff, building models using computer graphics. Right. My second co-op term was 100% programming and software, and that helped me realize that, you know, even though I liked programming back in high school and in university, it's not something I want to do as a career. So, you know, that's, that's one of the benefits where if you spend four months at six different jobs, you get to rule out what you don't want to do. And you may just find that thing that you really, really want to do.
0: Yeah, that's very that's cool. Awesome. Um, you also mentioned uh, higher education in there. So, what does it really take to become a, a full-fledged engineer? Can you stop after your undergrad? Do you have to do a master's, a PhD. What's what sort of the process um, if you want to just like become an engineer?
2: Uh, all you all you really need is an undergrad, so a four-year engineering degree, and that's actually one of the reasons engineering is is really popular. Is that Unlike say doctors or lawyers, where we have to start with one degree and then you have to take you know, you know bar exam or um, other exams and then go into spending another four to six years getting high, more higher education before you're ready to practice. With engineering, you can just do four years of school, get your paper, and go out there and and you know get a good job for life. That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, these days, you know, there are certain areas in engineering where you do need more. Uh, For example, if you do want to teach as a professor in university or college, you usually need at least a master's degree. And to become like an actual professor, not just a a lecturer or a part-time instructor at a university, you would need a PhD. Mm -hmm. But um, you can absolutely, and I'd say the majority of, of engineers out there would get, their um four-year bachelor's degree and go out and practice
0: okay so so i see with engineering i see a lot of um p what what does that stand for and what does that mean
2: so that's um a, a professional license to practice so just like you know doctors need to need to get their certification and lawyers need the bar um to practice and call yourself a practicing engineer um, it's a regulated profession. So in any province and any state uh, in the United States, you need to get uh, a license from the governing body of that province. So in Ontario, that's Professional Engineers of Ontario, and they've got certain requirements, such as um, you know you need to have a four-year engineering degree, you need to have X years of experience, um, and during that experience, you need to demonstrate that you've worked on uh, you know all the different aspects of engineering. You need to write um, a, a professional engineering law and ethics exam uh, to make sure that you're aware of the you know the regulations that govern engineering, the 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 discipline of engineering. Um, and once you do all of that, they, you get um, a professional engineering license, and that's what the PEng stands for. Your if you've got PEng uh, as your title. It means you are a professional engineer. So without that, like without with just a four-year engineering degree, you can work you, you can't call yourself an engineer. You can say you're say a designer or um, there's you know some other creative titles out there. <laughs> and you can do sort of engineering work, but you can't take responsibility for that engineering work. You always have to work under um, the guidance of, a, of someone else who's a professional engineer. Oh, OK, OK, now, I see.
1: is that consistent across the um, different specialties of engineering? Like, does a software engineer need a PENG as much as a uh, mechatronics one?
2: Uh, I would say yes. Again, anyone to use the title engineer professionally, you, you would be regulated. So if you have someone who calls themselves an engineer and they're not actually like they don't have a degree or they haven't gotten. Uh, The license, they can be reported, and uh, the PEO would, you know, they would go after them and, you know, for malpractice, that kind of stuff.
1: Right. Oh, wow. Yeah.
2: Mm.
0: That's pretty intense.
2: (laughs) It doesn't happen too, too often. Like, usually Mm -hmm. the PEO would just, you know, would warn them, like, hey, you can't advertise yourself as an engineer because you don't have that title. You don't legally, you can't practice as an engineer you can call, you know, you can maybe be part of a company that offers engineering services, but you would need to have or work under someone else who's mm-hmm. legally allowed to practice as an engineer.
3: Professional engineering adjacent, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so so that's
0: sort of like the the basics of how you get into engineering and, and what kind of fields you can go to. Um, can you, Take us through like an average day at your job now. Now that you're kind of settled and and have this, um, have a have an idea of what you're doing. Like, can you tell us what the average day is?
2: Yeah. Um. the The average day, so to speak, is um. To be honest, not necessarily exciting. It <laughs> uh, it often involves like reading and writing reports, uh, doing analysis and calculations to make sure that the thing that you're designing and building is going to work functionally and do what it's supposed to, and be not break down or be unsafe, um, that kind of thing. You would do that by, you know, calculations and analyses or writing and executing test plans where you build a thing and you test it to make sure that it meets all the the criteria for um, acceptance. So that's sort of you know, what a lot of the things that we do day-to-day look like. Um, Obviously, in addition to reading and responding to a lot of emails and doing a lot of um, Teams meetings. (laughs) these days. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But sometimes we do, or not sometimes, but pretty often we do uh, experiments and studies to prove out new concepts. So that's fun. You get to build things just to test out whether they will work. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, that's exciting. And you get to learn new things that way.
0: So is that is that like a day to day of your specific job or like just an average engineering job
2: No in in my specific job we do a fair bit of that Okay gotcha Um
0: so what would you say is sort of like what what would you say is your favorite part of the job and what what's your least favorite part I'm about being you, an engineer Definitely <laughs>
1: <it's not>. <laughs> <laughs> I think these meetings are brutal <laughs> Yeah
2: yeah, I'll just get that out of the way. That's, uh, that's the favorite <laughs> um, The most sort of favorite and exciting is uh, when you get to see the things that you um, you spend the time designing get built and operate. Mm-hmm. So, for example, you know, I'll go back to the automation line because that's probably something that someone can picture. It's you know very fast paced, lots of things moving, uh, big robot arms picking things up from one place to another. Um, very fine assembly um, activities, where you know, for example, you're taking a uh, a Gillette cartridge and welding the blades into place into it. Right? It's a very um, high precision and high speed activity because you don't want to take a minute to weld each cartridge because then you'd be making very few cartridges every day. Um, so you know, they, these are these assembly lines spit out like hundreds of parts per minute. Um, yeah, that's the kind of speed that they operate at. Mm-hmm. So if you are, you know, a systems engineer on one of those things, you start with a bunch of requirements from the customer. And one of them is pretty much what I said, like how many parts per minute your line has to output, but then there's also, you know, the part that you're building, it has to meet the certain requirements, right? So you start from the concept and give input throughout the stages for the mechanical aspect of it, the electrical aspect of the line, the programming of the line. And then over, you know, many months, you put all your effort into making sure this thing is designed in a way that when it's built and when it operates, it will work. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's really an exciting moment when things all get put together and the programming is complete and you're ready to, you know, turn on the switch so to speak and you see all these things move and and that's that's really exciting because mm-hmm. it's it's one thing to look at things on paper and on the computer but when you see it built in all its metallic glory <laughs>
0: that's
2: very satisfying
0: yeah i no. can i can relate to that um sorry jake go ahead
1: no that's okay um so yeah that that sounds like awesome like just being able to like uh, design something and and then sort of slowly see it come to fruition like is there I'm, I'm wondering how often they like your designs work out like a hundred percent great like I, I know you, that's part of the the profession is to make sure that you're designing things so that they will work but is there ever ever any times when you get to the final product and it just doesn't function the way it's supposed to?
2: The first time you put everything together and download code, Mm -hmm. it never works. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's just like if you talk to any programmer, you know, Mm -hmm. the first time they write it and compile it, it it never works. Troubleshooting and debugging is a huge part of it. And it's the Mm -hmm. same with a piece of equipment like this. Um, it's, it's, It's different if you're building, if you're just building something mechanical, right? there's Mm -hmm. not too much more to it than what it looks like on paper but when there's automation happening and you know machines coordinating with each other to do things Mm -hmm. there's it's a it's a long process of integrating the sensors and and the code with the mechanical aspects of things there's a lot of setting up that goes as part of uh, assembly but even with that there's a lot of tweaking troubleshooting rewriting code and that can be you know very frustrating as well as very exciting because sometimes you're banging your head against the wall cuz you really can't see why it's not working and An then extra
0: semicolon
2: <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly um, and then you know you, you sometimes you get those um, aha moments when you find that extra semicolon and <laughs> delete it and things work but it's it's never a binary thing it's always a, a working making you know fixing one thing at a time until it, until it works and yes there are times when through, despite our best efforts your final product it just there's nothing more you can do to get it to meet everything that was required so you know you may get really really close and at that point you sort of have to accept that this is this is as good as it's going to get right and that's that's not it's not necessarily a good feeling but
1: <laughs> that's that's
2: part of it
0: part of the job
1: yeah and are your projects then given like a specific like margin of error for you to work in like if if you get within that you're sort of happy you move on kind of thing
2: Sort of again, it, it all comes down to the customer, right? You're building this for mm, the customer, yeah. And if they were expecting um, for this part to make or this machine to make a uh, hundred parts a minute, and mm. you're only able to make ninety-five, then you know, oftentimes it gets into contractual negotiations where you know right. maybe they only pay us ninety-five percent of what the project was worth. You know, <laughs> again, I'm just <laughs> oversimplifying it, but that that sort of gets into uh, project management and commercial discussions at that point, but right. from a technical standpoint, if if you get up if you, if you get to a wall and you simply can't do better, I mean you you can always do better. There's it's a, it's always a matter of you know cost versus benefit. Mm-hmm. So maybe you can completely redesign the line and build it, you know, eighty percent from scratch, and you could do one hundred and five parts. But then that's going to cost potentially double of what the project plan was, right? right? Right. Then you have to make people have to make that call, and whether are are we going to accept the ninety five parts per minute, or is it really worth spending extra to get to a hundred whatever parts a minute? Right. But it's that's that's a, a lot of times that's part of engineering. It's to make those make those judgments because. Mm-hmm. At at any time, you know, you can always spend, if money wasn't an object, you could design anything, you could build anything, you could achieve any kind of performance, but engineering is also a matter of balancing um, the technical aspect with the economics of doing so. Um,
0: Yeah, I I think that was, um, I think that that makes sense, you know, every project has its own limitations and usually comes down to money and uh you know, the output, is it worth it kind of stuff. So you've you worked on some really cool projects like the Canda Arm and other, and you have some patents under in your name. Can you tell us a little bit about working on those projects or something similar?
2: Sure, I can talk about um, one of the projects I'm working on now that might give you a good idea of, um, you know, the, the type of challenges without being super broad. Uh, so just coming back to uh, the nuclear field, we we build tools for use in nuclear energy applications and we do the main purpose for building and using these tools is because of uh, high radiation fields so in most applications uh, for example in a nuclear power plant when you have a reactor and you need to do some maintenance for example you can't just send people out to a nuclear reactor to swap out components uh, it, usually has to be done using tools that are operated by people sitting in a control room far away. So uh, sometimes you go into outage where you can shut down the reactor temporarily for um, a few days, but every day that the reactor is not producing electricity is a huge loss for the utility. Uh, it's you know sort of on the order of a million dollars a day of loss that, um, one reactor is shut down for maintenance at um, our local power plants here so what they usually do is go in during that window set up these tools and and you know leave the reactor area and all the maintenance type stuff is done remotely by people sitting in a control room so we you know that's one of the areas where we design these large tools that are installed um, and set up in front of the reactor, and they send other inspection and maintenance tools into the reactor for you know performing inspection or some sort of maintenance activities. Does that sort of give you an idea?
0: Uh, yeah, I think it's, um, I, I mean, I understand it because I've seen the stuff that you work on, but I think <laughs> it's uh, it's a little bit more, I guess I guess it's it's harder to picture it because a lot of people aren't really familiar with nuclear reactors in general. Mm-hmm. Um, like the 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 amount of you know safety that goes into it, what goes into the maintenance part of it, uh, what are you replacing? Um, there's I guess there's the whole whole list of questions there. Um, but yeah, I think that that does give us a little bit better of an example of what you're working on currently.
2: Maybe another example that's easier to picture is um, hot cells in which they do um, processing of medical isotopes or other components that they remove from a reactor for inspection. So these are large shielded rooms and they have a couple of windows, which are you know, a couple of feet thick glass. And this is all to, to block the radiation and to keep radiation contained within the room. So if you need to, you know, if you have say a, a flask or a box with, with things inside it that you need to open up and work with, you have these huge manipulator arms. So it's basically, it gives you um, a place to put your hands in um, sort of like a a glove, but it's suspended from the ceiling you put your arms into it and there's equivalent arms inside the hot cell. And whatever you do with your hands, these arms inside the hot cells will move accordingly. So you're standing maybe 20 feet away from the piece that you want to work on, separated by uh, a bunch of glass and space. And you stand there looking in through through the glass windows and you're moving things inside the room by moving your hands on this side of the room.:
3: That's actually really cool. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm picturing like uh, the, the, the Simpsons where like yeah, Homer's yeah, yeah. Sticking, yeah, he's sticking his hands inside those rubber gloves behind <laughs> the glass stuff, but like, on a much more complicated scale. That's, that's really interesting, though. Yeah,
0: I think that that definitely is easier to picture. I think the 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 issue really is just the the understanding of nuclear plants or nuclear cells and and how they're set up. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, like, what do you guys think? Would you do you want to go into it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's
2: probably hard to it's, explain without visuals, though.
0: Yeah, I, but I think okay. So let's let's break it down. Let's let's break it down a little bit. So nuclear power plants and nuclear research plants are are different, right? They operate differently and they produce different things, both in terms of the output and in terms of the waste, right?
2: Sort of. Um, For the most part, they're actually the same. It's just the scale that's different. So like a research reactor, um, kind of like what we had at uh, Chalk River, it's more um, customizable and it's lower power. But other than that, they're pretty much the same. They, they both are based on using uh, fission, which is the splitting of large heavy atoms into smaller atoms. And that process generates a lot of heat and a lot of radiation. They're based on the same basic principle and th- you, the heat that's produced by that reaction is then used to boil water turn it into steam and turn turbines. So the only difference is that a nuclear reactor that's for generating power does this at a a larger scale. So there's a lot of heat generated, all that heat is used to create steam and it turns a lot of turbines that generates electricity. Um, For a research reactor like the one at Chalk River, the point is not to generate electricity. So there's no turbines. The point is to create radiation and um, and try to expose different objects to it. And this is, you know, it's a research reactor. It's used for research purposes. So there's a lot of things that people want to study when radiation and subatomic particles crash into each other and into different kinds of materials. What does it do to those materials? What's, you know, studying what happens at the fundamental microscopic levels of materials.
0: Okay, but okay. Yeah, at so, the
2: core, they're both basically crashing. Um, atoms into other atoms to generate heat and and um, and radiation.
0: Okay, so is the maintenance for these kinds of like the between the research and the power generation, is it similar? Are they different? Um, is the work you're doing? Can it be applied to both?
2: It can be. Again, it depends on the type of of reactor in so far as if you have to shut down a research reactor, it's not millions of dollars of loss, right? Because they're not making electricity that they sell and that's their sort of operating model. It's just a research thing. And also because it's lower power, it has less damage or less degradation over time. So, Mm -hmm. and also the safety related impact of it is slightly less because if something goes wrong, it's not high power, it's not as high energy and there's not as much nuclear waste being produced in there as a a full-on power plant. So the release of radioactivity, yes, it's, it's bad, but it's not as bad as if something went wrong in a real power plant.
0: Okay. And and the things that you're creating specifically, um, are they for use in both scenarios?
2: They are very, very reactor dependent. So it depends on which client you're making it for. Like I said- oh. So so even- it, Yeah, go ahead.
0: Even energy-based reactors are very different from, from one to the other?
2: Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. Oh, oh, so the- Power
2: plant to power plant, they can be very different. And what okay. we build is, hundred percent custom one of a kind for the specific project uh, for every customer. Right,
1: right. And how how much do they differ? Like is it, it cooling methods, um, like the the kinds of uh, atoms that are splitting? like what are the the details there?
2: From a power plant perspective, it's more about how the core is set up. But mm-hmm. from our perspective, the tools that we make, are again, like every reactor, just physically the way they're built and Mm -hmm. what, what points on that reactor or that piece of equipment do we interface with will completely change what we're building, right? Because if you want to go in from the top of a cylindrical reactor, it's completely different than if you're going in from the side of a square reactor,
1: Right, Right. right? Just
2: from a basic, this is the shape that you have to work on perspective the tools are completely different
1: it all comes back to pegs and holes eh? pretty much
2: (laughs) (laughs) you need to know what you're going to operate on before you go in right
0: yeah i don't know why i guess i assume there's sort of a standard when it comes to nuclear reactors and that a lot of them would be built very similarly um, to be most efficient but i guess it really depends on where you're building it what purpose and how many people it needs to serve
2: well there are standards and there are you know for example all um can do reactors are sort of i'd say 90 percent the same they're same in the type of technology that they operate with but the shapes of the fuel the sizes of the fuel the size of the reactor that kind of thing thing would be different Mm -hmm. Uh, similarly there's you know conceptually different types of reactors and there's companies out there that make reactors so for example westinghouse is one company and they've got you know a few different models of reactors and if you go to the states these are pretty common and you may have like eight different power plants that use the same model of westinghouse reactors and those could be all the same but even then they may be slightly different depending on you know how much power they generate they and the way they are they are configured but between those eight of them or whatever they could be 95% the same but then there may be a different company that makes a different model of reactors which is going to be you know only 65% the same as those other the reactor that the other company makes
3: mm-hmm.
2: that kind of a thing
0: yeah. Okay. I don't know, um, so, <laughs> no, no, I think, no, 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 that makes sense. So I just want to take it back to, so this I'm kind of wondering now, um, in your education history, is this something that you learned while you were doing your master's or is this something that you learned like on the job working for different companies, or is that something they teach you? These are the different kinds of reactors. This is what you'll have to work with.
2: It's not part of a, a general or broad engineering education. But if it's something that you're interested in, uh, some engineering schools do have nuclear, you know, reactor specific courses that you can take. So when I did my master's at U of D, I chose to take a couple of those courses, but it's not by any means something that every engineer would know. It's not something, you know, reactors or nuclear physics and that kind of stuff is not uh, a core course. Mm-hmm. it's more of an elective, you know, if, if, the, if you're interested in this thing, you can take courses on it, or you can, you know, there's a lot of resources out there to read and learn in your, in your own time, and a lot of it is also related to the work that you do, and you're learning it on the job. Mm-hmm.
3: Okay.
0: Okay, yeah, no, that makes sense. I think explaining the basics of the of nuclear reactors really helps kind of bring everything into perspective a little bit better.
2: Yeah. And unfortunately, I, it's it's hard to explain these things without a visual. So mm-hmm.
3: don't you think did a pretty concerned. good job regardless. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, uh, that does help. Yeah. So uh Sergeant, so, so for a position like engineering, kind of like what you're doing, doesn't have to be specifically like your career, but what could somebody expect like salary compensation-wise for something like that? Um so just
2: out of school, then it it does vary uh industry to industry and if you have any experience say internship or co-op experience uh just out of school you could be looking at anywhere from 50 to 80k a year range Ooh. and about mid-career say like 10 to 15 years in um you can usually expect to be making a 100k plus in, in a lot of engineering jobs and again this highly depends on the type of engineering um, the industry the location and stuff like that because you know, obviously, some types of engineering are more in demand and pay higher. Like these days, software pays a crazy amount compared to civil, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you know, some industries also pay higher. I think oil and gas during the boom a couple of decades ago. If you were working um, in Alberta, you'd be the odds are you were making more money than if you were working in Ontario, sure. Yeah, and again, some jobs are in remote locations uh, for example if if um, you're working on a working at a um, nuclear reactor they tend to put those away from huge hugely populous cities <laughs> <laughs> uh, you could be working in you know mining industry or up in fort mac in alberta digging mm-hmm. crude oil out of the ground so remote locations they usually pay a premium to attract people up there
3: yeah it makes sense
2: I remember yeah. um, maybe 10, 15 years ago, um, truck drivers driving crude oil up at Fort Mac, they were making you know a couple hundred K a year because of a remote location and danger pay because of the cargo that they were driving. Yeah. Wow. <laughs>
0: that That's makes sense. Else. Just put yeah. it in it is, uh, perspective. Yeah, I think um, it's, it is very in- industry dependent, but, uh, I think in a lot of positions, it does depend on like where you're working as well, right?
2: Yeah, and as you specialize, you know, your your skills are more in demand. So Mm -hmm. if you are um, say a generic manufacturing engineer versus if you are um, an aerospace engineer with 10 years of experience or 20 years of experience on like the Canada arm, for example, right? you could see that niche experience that you've got can make you very valuable to some companies. But on the other hand, it can also make it difficult to find a job because there's only a handful of companies that need that kind of experience. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's mm-hmm. difficult to sort of move from location to location and find a job that values your very, very focused expo- experience.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah that makes sense we, we see that in well across all industries really is the increase in specialization means in compensation but also uh competition right um so it's difficult but then that's how you end up with uh people that like uh, what do they call them in, in football the uh the long snapper makes a million dollars and all he does is throw a football back. <laughs> <I'm just> like... <laughs> Literally, yeah. it's his only job, right? But, yeah. yeah.
0: Um, so let's bring it back to you and your career specifically. Can you tell us about one of the highlights of your career? Maybe something that you're super proud of or something that you really had an impact in your career?
3: Uh, it's,
2: it's hard to narrow it down to, to one thing you can Um, give us a couple if you want (laughs) but it's more sort of on uh there's there's been one project that i've been working on for a few years and it's a it's a really large and complex job that where sort of uh, the expectations and requirements sort of keep changing and it's a big enough job that you can't just have one systems engineer on it you have to have a, a team of systems engineers and I've been leading that team. And that's sort of up until now, I would say that that's sort of the highlight of my career. It's been more meaningful and more rewarding than anything else that I've done in the past. So it's not just uh, from a technical perspective, but also guiding and mentoring new, um, sort of more of the junior and, and up and coming members of the team into, developing themselves and and their talents and so like as a as a team lead kind of thing um, that's been a a very fulfilling role i'd say
3: yeah yeah Um,
2: yeah
0: so you know it seems like that's something that you've been really really liking being able to mentor people so what what kind of advice would you give to somebody that's maybe starting or looking to go into engineering or uh, yeah, what kind of advice would you give to someone?
2: Well, so if you're in school and you're not scared of some math, if you're passionate about science and uh, putting it to use in building new things and improving existing technologies and existing, um, I guess, state of the world, then engineering can be a very rewarding career for you. Um, and if you're in school, I'd say it. Try out different engineering-related subjects, or you know, join teams like robotics teams and stuff like that. Um, try out programming, for example, things like that, and that would give you an idea of whether or not you do enjoy doing it because it's it is one of those things that, like I said, it it's very mainstream and a lot of, it's popular in in the sense that you know a four-year degree and then you're sort of set for a career. So a lot of people go into that and then end up finding that they don't enjoy it, or, um, you, you know, it's not rewarding, even if it's, uh, you know, the subjects themselves sounded like fun, the day-to-day aspect of the job isn't really like that. It's not satisfying. So if you try out things like, you know, joining a robotics team or joining, um, a team that builds race cars and, you know, things like that. And I'm thinking, I'm talking about like in university, maybe not in high school, but that would give you a flavor of, of actual application of engineering. And that I would say that's very important to get early on so that you're not disappointed down the road. Yeah. Good advice. For sure.
0: I think, um, I think that's actually a a hard the hard thing about engineering is kind of picturing the application part. In school, you learn a lot of theory, you learn a lot of math, you learn all that. But then when it comes to actually putting it together as part of a team and 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 making everything come to life, like you were saying earlier, um, when your project comes out, I think that can be hard to just visualize just in school. So yeah, I think that's a really good, important piece to figure out early. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, just a few more questions for me anyway, uh, or we're really just a couple more. Um, so what, uh, what do you have planned for the future? Where do you see yourself and your career in the next five or so years?
2: Well, like I said, the project that I'm on right now, um, I've been, it's, it's been putting me in sort of a. a frontline tactical leadership position. So in in other words, I'm still doing a lot of day-to-day technical work, but I'm also leading a team and providing guidance and mentorship. Um, and, you know, the I, I kind of want to, to expand on that and get into you know, creating tools to enable people to work smarter rather than harder and just setting up an environment where, you know, we can we can grow our team, so for example, like right now, our company has been growing and expanding when I started my group was say about five people, and our role was a bit smaller, but now we are closer to thirty people, and I'm excited to be part of growing our team um, you know getting more of the the junior and intermediate um, members of our team um, helping them grow their technical talents and tackling more and more complex and challenging projects.
0: So do you ever see yourself being a professor at any point or teaching at
2: any point? Not necessarily. I think I'm a little too far into the um, engineering, like industry side of things, because I would I would have to probably go back to school to get back into the mindset of of teaching and learning and students and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. but it's more more just even applications, those so, so things you know, how to put what you learned in school into um, into practice in designing and building things and testing things and troubleshooting all of that. like it's a it's a learned skill mm-hmm. and i I do enjoy coaching and guiding um so not necessarily new grads but just people who are going into that engineering role mm-hmm. young minds
3: shaping guy. young minds <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, yeah awesome um that's yeah that's pretty much it for me how about you guys uh, that, that's it for me buddy yeah yeah all right well then you guys know just one last question
3: uh do you think we could do that oh i know Ayush couldn't yeah Ooh. do you think Yay. they could do that <laughs> low shot <laughs> this guy he's sitting on that one for the whole. Such a, <laughs> such a good friend such a good friend this guy
2: so i mean considering that a, a four-year degree is sort of a requirement it's certainly an investment in time and money but if you do enjoy maths and science and your brain generally thinks about using those principles to solve problems, then yes, you can certainly do it. It's just, um, you have to, you do want to be sure that, you know, it's something that you will enjoy before making a plunge that will take years of your life. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure.
2: Yeah. yeah.
0: Awesome. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us and and walking us through what engineering and nuclear engineering and what your job really entails. I think it's uh, it's something that I've taken for granted just being around it my whole life, but I think it's uh, it's a very important and especially right now, very um, prominent career path. And I
3: think it's important for people to see what, what it's all about. Yeah, Arjun, for someone like me who had really no idea about this stuff, this was actually really enlightening, man. Thanks so much.
1: Yeah, very cool
2: i'm glad my pleasure thanks for having
3: me and yeah hope hope that discussion really
2: does help some of your listeners
0: yeah yeah thank you so much for for hopping on have a have the great rest of your day <laughs> <laughs> hey,